Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books by or about women. And today we are very excited to have Jen Campbell here to chat with us. She's the author of The Beginning of the World in the Middle of Night and Franklin's Flying Bookshop and many other books, which we'll probably discuss a little bit here. Um, but welcome, Jen. We're really excited to have you on. I'm really welcome. excited to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, Kendra told me about this book a couple of weeks ago. Well, I guess it's been months ago now. I don't know. She's like, Time we have to, you have to read this and we have to have you on the podcast. And I'm like, what did you say? Yes, of course. And we did. I know, because I remember I got my copy in the mail and I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just read a few pages, you know, like you do. And I was like, two hours later, what? <laughs> it's over. Like, what happened? Yeah, that's when Autumn gets, like, all the texts is when stuff like that happens. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you liked it. That is a relief. That's good. <laughs> you said this was, like, the first talk that you had done about the book. Yeah, it is. It, it's um, So it's officially out as we're recording this. It's out next week. So I've done a couple of events pre-publication, but they've been on a topic that kind of relates to the book in some way. So, you know, a conversation on the history of fairy tales or whatever. So, this, But this is the first time that I'm going to be asked direct questions about my book. And I was having a bit of a panic earlier because I was thinking, do, do I know it? And my partner was like, you wrote this book. I'm like, I know, I know. But but it's weird. It's weird when you write something um, and it's such a solitary process and then you kind of take it out into the world as this like living, breathing creature that you're kind of linked with. And you're both a bit on exhibition, like in a nice way, obviously, because I want to take it out into the world. But it's kind of a strange thing, but a nice, strange thing. But yes, this is the first time I've talked about it, which you might be able to tell by my my incoherent rambling, <laughs> which will become more succinct, I promise. <laughs> yeah. You know, the powers of editing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but it, well, yeah. So yeah, it's the first time that I've talked about it. I'm excited to talk about it, though. I'm excited to see what I'm going to say. I mean, who knows? <laughs> well, you've been busy promoting your other book, um, Franklin's... Oh, I'm going to say it wrong. Franklin's Flying Bookshop, isn't it? That is not correct. The <laughs> yeah, a bit of inspiration, though. You got it right. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, my, I gave it to my nephew, and he, he really loves it. And so now it's just like, I think it's just perfect for him. It's books and, and dragons and a strong female protagonist, which I'm always trying to sneak mm-hmm. in there, you know, when I get in books. Yeah. Oh, I'm always so. trying to sneak it in there with writing as well. I suppose it's not much sneaking. I'm just pl- plonking. <laughs> <They're there. laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I have been doing that. In fact, I did an event. Uh, this morning for Franklin and um, with Katie in Chelmsford, which is really nice. I've never done events with kids before and I really wanted to write a book for them because I was a bookseller for 10 years and they were my favorite part of the job because when they love something, they love it so fiercely. Um, so I just really wanted to write something that hopefully they would love fiercely. But then the the flip side of writing for kids is, is that if they don't like something, they absolutely tell you. <laughs> so I was a bit worried about doing events for Franklin, you know, thinking that it's going to be some kid at the back going, Mom, this is so boring. <laughs> uh, that hasn't happened yet. Um, but we've been drawing lots of dragons with the kids, talking to them about their dragons. Um, we had one little girl who drew a dragon who was half dragon, half kangaroo, which was pretty cool. One boy drew a dragon who he called Elemental because he could turn into any element, which I thought was pretty cool. It's, it's great. So, yeah, I'm very happy that Franklin is also out in the world as well. It's been interesting to promote them both together, actually. One, because obviously logistically that's interesting, Um, but because they're so different, it's nice to bounce off 
you know, each other. Because Franklin is quite, well, it's quite light because it's a picture book, even though it is a about acceptance and maybe more difficult topics to talk about um but it, but in but with a dragon i mean you know come on dragons everyone loves a dragon whereas the short stories are, are a bit darker so it's nice to have that balance yeah and give you give you a break from one yeah. from the other but speaking of your book the beginning of the world in the middle of the night um it is a short story collection and so for our listeners who haven't heard of the book yet or read synopses or anything uh would you like to tell us a little bit about it and kind of where the ideas came from oh an elevator pitch oh my goodness <laughs> uh, it's difficult to do elevator pitches with short stories because obviously there's lots of different stories in them but um generally speaking they're a collection of 12 stories um that are in some way most of them inspired by fairy tales so they're not fairy tale retellings but they are about characters who are a bit obsessed with storytelling um, and about rooting themselves in a story or within history to kind of find their place in the world. So they use stories as a means to relate to um, their surroundings. Um, that might be to help them feel as though they belong or it might be because they're trying to justify horrific things that they're doing. So I'm just really interested in narrative. So I kind of wanted to play with that a little bit. And some of the stories have some magical realism elements in. The first story is about a world where love is dwindling and people are buying animal hearts from heart factories because when they fall out of love with someone, their heart breaks. So it's a world that's riddled with heart disease. And there are themes of bodily difference in there, othering I think is something that well I, I think I know it's something that I, I, I'm interested in um, <laughs> so people um, who haven't perhaps felt included in stories before um, so they're the ones who are grappling with their narrative and how those narratives feed into other people's basically how stories spider web and join together that's what I think I hopefully played with in these stories so that's that is that is my elevator pitch it was much longer than 10 seconds but (laughs) well I think what you said about how these characters use stories as a way to make sense of the world there's a Joan Didion quote that I've been thinking about lately which she says we tell ourselves stories in order to live and that's kind of the feeling I got like and I like that it wasn't retellings either that it was more of the retellings were either a jumping off point or a somehow woven in in the middle. I don't know. It was, I was fascinated the whole time. Thank you. <laughs> so some of the fairy tales I wasn't very familiar with, but I guess my question is like, so when did this love of fairy fairy tales kind of start? And like, why do you think we're still infatuated with them after hundreds of years and these fairy tales being out in the world? Well, I think, well, two separate things. So for for the world, why we're still obsessed with fairy tales is because they've constantly evolved with us over time. They're not fixed in their form. They're constantly morphing and they, they belong to all of us. And I think there's something quite mythic about fairy tales to begin with because they don't have, or well, most of them don't, some do, um, and they mostly don't have specific origins. So they're almost like lost souls in themselves there's always something to play with because they belong to everybody. They're a bit of a writer's dream in a way because they're like these cookie cutter stories that you can like jigsaw and place together and all of these things. Um, so I think as a writer, that's why they're interesting, but we, we have nostalgic feelings towards fairy tales, right? Individually we're told them when we're young. So I think that, um, we have this affinity with them when we grow up and that then we pass that on and that continues. Um, but storytelling, broadly speaking, is what brings us together 
as communities, you know, like our community, these, this is our origin story. And this is why we're different to the people over there. It's, it's how you unite communities for good or for bad, or just all storytelling as, as a means to understand the world around us. And that's what a lot of fairy tales are. Um, for me, um, I think I fell, I was thinking about this question. I think um, I fell in love with fairy tales through Roald Dahl um, mm. and his revolting rhymes, which just, I love. <laughs> they just made me aware that you could do interesting things with fairy tales. I have actually, I have the three little pigs in front of me. Have you read, have you read revolting rhymes at all? I haven't. Mm-mm. You haven't. Okay. All right. Okay. Please let me read you these few lines. Cause I think they, they're, so, <laughs> they're poems. So this is the end of his retelling of three little pigs in little red riding hood. Uh, little red riding hood shoots the wolf dead with a pistol. So, uh, Roald Dahl decides that he's going to bring little red riding hood back into the three little pigs. The wolf is at the last pig's house. So the wolf approached another house, a house, which also had inside a little piggy trying to hide. You'll not get me. The piggy cried. I'll blow you down. The wolf replied. You'll need pig said a lot of puff. And I don't think you've got enough. Wolf huffed and puffed and blew and blew. The house stayed up as good as new. If I can't blow it down, Wolf said, I'll have to blow it up instead. I'll come back in the dead of night and blow it up with dynamite. Pig cried, you brute. I might have known. Then picking up the telephone, he dialed as quickly as he could the number of Red Riding Hood. Hello, she said. Who's speaking? Who? Oh, hello, Piggy. How are you? Pig cried, (laughs) I need your help, Miss Hood. Oh, help me, please. Do you think you could? I'll try, of course, Miss Hood replied. What's on your mind? A wolf, Pig cried. I know you've dealt with wolves before, and now I've got one at my door. My darling pig, she said, my sweet. That's something really up my street. I've just begun to wash my hair, but when it's dry, I'll be right there. <laughs> A short while later, through the wood, came, ri- came striding brave Miss Riding Hood. The wolf stood there, his eyes ablaze and yellowish like mayonnaise. His teeth were sharp, his guns were raw, and spit was dripping from his drawer. Once more, the maiden's eyelid flickers. She draws the pistol from her knickers. Once more, she hits the vital spot and kills him with a single shot. Pig peeping through the window stood and yelled, Well done, Miss Riding Hood! Oh, but Piglet, you must never trust. Young ladies from the upper crust. For now, Miss Riding Hood, one notes, not only has two wolfskin coats, but when she goes from place to place, she has a pigskin traveling case. <laughs> I, just, I love it so much. It's just messed up. <laughs> so that is where I fell in love with fairy tales, I think, because of Roald Dahl. <laughs> that is a delightful piece. <laughs> yeah, and I used to have it on VHS as well. Quentin Blake had done this um, animation, and Red Riding Hood was just a total badass. And I just, I, I loved it. I did. What about you, though? Because you say that you love fairy tales as well. When did you fall in love with them? You know, it's interesting. That's a good question. Because I don't think I was actually had many fairy tales in my childhood growing up. And so I kind of came to them later in life. Like, I think I was actually reintroduced reintroduced to them more through something like The Night Circus, which isn't quite a fairy tale, but it's very ma- a very magical kind of story. Which it plays sort of, on that nostalgia, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. it does. And so from there, I've just found myself leaning more and more and more towards, like, fairy tale retellings or stories with um, magical elements into them. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't think, for me, I wasn't obsessed with them as a child. Um, I think that's really the only memory that I have that's vivid about fairy tales. Um, but my love definitely came later um, because I think fairy tales are quite an interesting way to 
play with society's expectations because because you know what the ending of a fairy tale is supposed to be or you think you do if we're right. going by modern like disney tale versions you know the uh, disney tale disney fairy tale versions there we go that you, you know that the prince is going to end up with the princess or whatever so right. kind of trip the reader up and make them see actually things can be different and not just in fairy tales but in the way that we we maybe see the world in a quite a heteronormative kind of way if you play with narratives where people um, assume the endings you can I think do interesting things so Jeanette Winterson I think was someone who introduced me to that in Oranges mm. Are Not the Early Fruit Kendra am I right you're reading her soon is that right for the autumn readathon I just finished Oranges Aren't the Only Fruit and I have um uh, why be happy when you can be normal oh God, it's gonna shelf. break your heart so much <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, like I was in such a book coma after um oranges and I just like sat there and like I have no will left. It's like it, it just so it, yeah, it's so moving and like. I'm just gonna quit gushing now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can gush over to that I'm, I'm there. I'm signing up. I'm up for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's someone in oranges. It's it's a it's a quite a long time since I've read it, but she is someone who. Um, plays with that element of fairy tale when she finds herself in quite traumatic situations because it's a way for her to relate back to stories that she trusts but also can rewrite and restructure I, t- I can't remember if she talks about this in oranges um or if she talks about it in why be happy or if she's just talked about it at an event but um that restructuring of narrative was something that she experienced in her own life because um her mother didn't allow any books in the house um, apart from the Bible, um, but she did allow Jane Eyre, and she mm. read Jane Eyre to Jeanette when she was younger. And it wasn't until Jeanette went to university that she realised that um, spoilers for Jane Eyre, by the way, but she that she realised that Jane didn't end up with St John Rivers. She ended up with Rochester because her mother, when she read it out, had edited the end so that um, oh that Jane married um, St John, and they just went out and like taught the word of God to everybody. <laughs> and um, it said that she never thought her mother was such a good storyteller because she hated stories so much. She thought that they were lies. Um, but clearly she had done, like she must've been quite good to continue turning those pages and make, you know, Jeanette think that this was still Jane Eyre. Seriously. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, and when she found that she had a bit of, you know, renewed respect for her mother, even though she was, terrible person um for being able to do that (laughs) but yeah i would recommend oranges for anyone who hasn't read it but um i guess switching gears a little bit i've loved watching you know your videos especially your history of fairy tales and one of the things that you've spoken frequently about is how disfigurement and deformity are portrayed in fairy tales um so i wanted to ask you if you could share a little bit about that and some of the things you've talked about and why it's important to be aware of bodily difference and how it's portrayed in stories well i think it's important to see ourselves in books um whoever we are in various forms and I didn't really ever see myself growing up um growing up no I didn't see myself in books growing up there we go um as someone with a disfigurement or rather well I did but it, it wasn't really a person that I recognized so I saw myself in um like Roald Dahl's The Witches with their uh, square feet and purple eyes I saw myself in Captain Hook I saw myself in basically all of the bad guys every James Bond villain every horror movie it's it's not a nice for someone who loves books so much it's not a nice feeling to not see yourself in books and actually I think I only truly saw myself in a book with regard to like, bodily difference a couple of weeks ago 
<laughs> which was really weird. And I read The Island at the End of Everything by Kieran Millwood Hargrave, which is about Colleen Island, which is um, an island in the Philippines where people with leprosy were sent in the early 1900s. Um, and one of the main characters who doesn't have leprosy does have a disfigurement with her hand. I don't know, it's, it's a beautiful book that's written in just a beautiful way and everyone should read it. Um, but to go back to fairy tales, I find that fairy tales are really interesting because they, if you look back at the history of them, they tell us the concerns of a lot of people at the time that they were told. Um, So, for instance, Hansel and Gretel, um, which emerged really in the 1300s, was really um, a a product of great famine. And there were lots of rumours of, you know, parents abandoning their children in churches because they couldn't afford to feed them, um, rumours of cannibalism and stuff like that. And the same with disfigurement. You can see that used in many different ways. And I think in storytelling, it's important to have lived experiences so accurate representation of people who happen to have disabilities or disfigurements but then also it is interesting to play with metaphor and to look at how otherness can be shown in more magical ways um i think it's interesting to have both i I don't think that you should just have the one especially not just the magical one i think that people do need to truly see themselves but for instance i read um Perfectly Norman, which is a new picture book by Tom Percival, which is about a boy called Norman who suddenly grows wings. He's really embarrassed and he hides them under his coat because he doesn't want anyone else to see them. But then he realizes that he's really uncomfortable. But the reason he's really uncomfortable is because he's wearing this coat all the time. Um, mm. So he decides to take it off and show his wings to everybody. And that could be a representation of, you know, being queer or, you know, having a disfigurement or just being different in whatever kind of way. So I think that we need that kind, but we also need the the real kind too. So if you look at the history of fairy tales, uh, um, Beauty and the Beast was in, is thought to have been inspired by a real person who was called Petrus Gonzalves, and he was born in Tenerife. Um, and at the age of 10, he was sold by his parents to the court of France. He had a condition called hypertrichosis, which is um, where you're born with hair all over your body. So basically, he was put on exhibition, really, in the court of France. And then they sold him to, or gave him as a gift, actually, I think, to the court of the Netherlands. They thought it would be hilarious to marry him off to someone called Lady Catherine, who they didn't like. Um, and they didn't tell her who she was going to be marrying. So they staged this wedding. Um, but it turned out that they actually liked each other very much and they got on very well. And yeah, that is thought to be the inspiration for for Beauty and the Beast. But then when you take that element and then the redemption part of Beauty and the Beast, you can't see, but I'm doing lots of air quotes. <laughs> redemption. <laughs> you know, that, that idea that if you are good enough, if you pray hard enough, you can be changed back into a air quotes, perfect human being, etc. That is a very problematic thing. And and fairy tales do do that. You know, the beautiful people are often the good people. And if someone is, you know, air quote, twisted and ugly or whatever, they're often a bad person. That is something to play with when it comes to fairy tale retellings. Sorry, I'm going on a long time here. But <laughs> I think in the 1800s was the most interesting time um, for fairy tales and bodily difference because it was the time when when theories of, of evolution were, were being talked about the most and it was with freak shows being popularized as well um so in in scientific life and everyday life there were theories that perhaps people with body differences were like the missing link in the evolution theory so people were exhibited 
um, like that. And that crossed over into fairy tales and bodily difference. People were saying that maybe if you were born with a disability, you were a changeling, that a fairy had stolen your real child away and um, you were left with this imposter. It's all really interesting. I find it really fascinating. It's just, as I said, like a way that people were trying to understand the world. These these aren't metaphors or things that scientists were coming up with. Like some people truly believe this. Like you could study fairies in entomology, which is the study of insects. They just thought that maybe fairies were were, were a creature that we hadn't discovered yet. You know, like when they first discovered dinosaur bones, they thought maybe they were giants to begin with. Um, and when Samuel Johnson created um, the dictionary in 1755 the entry for dragon was a creature that is possibly imaginary um so i think with the discovery of evolution it answered a lot of questions but also posed a lot of questions so imagination had to come back into play and people scrabbled and grabbed at fairy tales and things that were, were once comfortably stories people were thinking well actually are they because these are things we kind of half understand so maybe we can bring them back to the table maybe these are things that actually exist yeah that's one of the things that I really love about fairy tales I've loved fairy tales since I was a kid and I think you know just the idea that there might be other explanations for things and you know I mean as a kid you're trying to make sense of the world and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why kids really love fairy tales especially is because you're trying to figure out how everything works um, yeah. And I was really into dark fairy stories as a teenager, especially because you know fairies in most folklore are not great. Fairies, you know, are, fairies are bad. They are, <laughs> they are very very naughty. <laughs> But I just want to say I really appreciated a lot of your discussions about bodily difference on your channel because once you mention that, like, it's something like once you, it's sort of like once you realize, like, feminism, when that clicks, you know? And so I was watching a Wonder Woman, and uh, one of the um, antagonists, you know, has, a, like, a face mask because, like, she's been burned or, or, or something. And it's like, for some, whatever reason, we've equated that, you know, bodily difference equals evil and then like perfect quote air quotes again you know a perfect body equals a, a you know perfect human being or whatever um just being able to detach those associations in your brain like I think it's definitely a first step but it yeah. is it is everywhere it is and I, th- I think that there are there are two separate issues there are you know beauty standards and the way that women in particular are taught to think about their own bodies um and then there's also the idea of well not the idea but but the discussion of um able-bodiedness and then disability and disfigurement and badness it's it's rooted really far back in history so in ancient um greece when they were putting on um theater they would do it in front of a lot of people and they only had a few actors who would play several different parts and they were all men because you know women weren't allowed Um, (laughs) so yeah i mean but get us away from there (laughs) Um, so to be able to show who they were at any given time they wore these really exaggerated masks that they made the bad characters would have their sins shown on the outside of their bodies so that they were they were marked characters so that the audience could say very easily oh that is the bad person Um, and in many cultures around the world it's believed that what was believed that if you were born with a disfigurement or a disability that it was some kind of punishment for something that your parents did wrong because mm. no one understood genetics and science. So therefore it, it, it was a bad 
thing. But it, it's it's fascinating to me and startling to me that in this day and age when we hopefully do not believe these things anymore, that, that they still creep into our storytelling in a way that it's so ingrained that people just don't question it. Obviously, when you when you have a disfigurement or a disability, it's it's not something that you miss <laughs> when you're consuming media when you're younger because like, it's it's just it's so obvious. Like no, like we don't have the privilege of, of not seeing it. So, um, mm. but it is interesting that when when I say that to other people who haven't noticed before, they're like, "Oh my god, it's everywhere!" Like literally, it's it's everywhere. And Wonder Woman, I was so pissed. I was just like, guys, like we can do better we can do so much better there's no plot and as far as i can tell um from my research um dr poison doesn't have a facial disfigurement in the comics either so it's like literally something that they added it's it's not something you can be like as canon not that that makes it okay either but i mean in the, the new disney version of um the jungle book they added a facial disfigurement a burn um, to Shere Khan as well. He didn't have that in the Rudyard Kipling version, oh. though he though he did have um, he did have a disfigurement because um, one of his legs was disfigured, but his face wasn't. And then they got rid of the of the disfigurement in the early cartoon version. But oh no 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 no, we're going to bring it back for the new one because the kids need to know that this this tiger is bad. <laughs> He's bad news. So we need to make sure that half of his face is burned. It's, re- it's really, it's just ridiculous. I like. I would like to think that we're making a step in the right direction. Um, I think probably in books more so than in films because obviously books are less visual in that sense. But uh, there's also the tendency to have, if you're going to have a character with a disfigurement, to have them as some kind of, you know, plot device to make the able-bodied character learn something about themselves and become more accepting. And isn't it great that the able-bodied character learned that other people are human too? <laughs> and then we can all have a cup of tea in the hug and that's the end. Um, so just, uh, I'd like some more nuanced betrayal of, uh, you know, people with disfigurements. That would be really nice. <laughs> um, one of these days. Well, I think uh, stories like yours are helping push things in the right direction. And that's one thing that I noticed in reading your short story collection. This actually moves nicely into the next question I wanted to ask, which is like two of my favorite stories in your collection, which were Margaret and Mary and the End of the World, and then the last one, Bright White Hearts. The women in these stories are really grappling with these really intense situations and like these narratives in their lives and like these things that they can and can't do. And I think it's really important because like what, what you're saying about like beauty standards and movies and especially in like recent fairy tale stories that have come out, like, you know, the, the pretty girl who does the right thing, you know, is glamorized and, you know, is the person who we should, who should be praised. And like you said, it's like two parts, it's like two sides of the same thing. And then like the people with deformities are like the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Um, And you kind of, I think you kind of already answered this question already, but I do think it's important that these more nuanced stories, particularly about women are portrayed in books and in media I'm tired of the pretty girl gets the boy and, you know, they all live happily ever after. And it's really straightforward, you know, straight being the operative word. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But those, but those two stories in particular, like I told Kendra after I read them, I was like, Oh my gosh, these are the kinds of stories that make me want to write stories. Like that's mm. how, like, that's how I felt afterwards. Cause 
you don't realize how big of a lack there is until you read a story like that that fills that void and then you're like man we need more of this thank you well actually it's interesting to hear that so are those two your favorites then of the collection just because I'm keeping a tally I'm quite interested because <laughs> I can't pick because they're like my children right but, <laughs> but I uh, Margaret and Mary in the end of the world is so far the winner I think on the tally front which is interesting yeah I wrote that one well I wrote the majority of it actually at the Tate Britain which is where the portrait the, the picture the enunciation is um, I should probably say what this story is about shouldn't I it's, it's about oh it's difficult though <laughs> okay it's about a woman who has a fascination for this painting called The Annunciation in an art gallery, which she goes to visit, which leads her to reflect on her life as a teenager and her thoughts on who her, what, who her body belongs to and what bodies can do and how they change and morph. Um, and I don't want to give spoilers for the story, so I probably won't say more than that. Um, but it feeds into, there are, there are different layers to the story. There's a story of her, and when she's older, there's a story of her as a teenager. And then there is the story of the painting, which is uh, Christina Rossetti posing as Mary for her brother to paint her. Yeah. So it was an interesting story to write because there are a lot, many narrative threads that feed into it. And I feel like when I try and explain the story to people who haven't read it with all the spoilers, it sounds a bit, uh, <laughs> a bit strange. Well, I, I would take as a compliment. I really wanted to pull together different stories, stories of different women in different periods of time and how they are battling with issues that are kind of timeless, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how, how those things are timeless, because within the stories, there's also elements of, you know, witchcraft and heresy and people blaming women for essentially things that they, they didn't do and weren't allowed to have control over, but they carry the blame that's being thrust upon them for the rest of their lives they're the people that have to deal with the consequences that, that essentially have been chained to them i think it's important to have these counter narratives and like what you're saying about women being blamed for different situations and things is like it's important to have like counter narratives that combat those kinds of things like no you don't have to do <laughs> you know you don't have to follow the traditional path and you don't have to like there's not a pre-written script for you, which I think it's easy with, especially with pr all the princess stories out in society, particularly right now, it's easy to believe that that's all there is, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and thank you. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it in bright white hearts, which is the other one that you mentioned, um, that was that idea of, of princesses and idolizing was, was something that I wanted to um, present in a different way. So for, for those of you who haven't read the book, it's about a teenage girl who works in an aquarium, which is just an aquarium during the day, but at night it turns into what is called the nighttime aquarium, where basically women or girls dress up as mermaids and swim in the tanks for men to enjoy. And they, they pay money to see to see these girls dressed up as mermaids. Um, and the narrator is really fascinated by um, a mermaid who works there called Melissa Singh. Um, she loves her. And the reason that she loves her, well, it's 
well, because she loves her, um, but also because she thinks that maybe she is like her. She has um, mm-hmm. a scar on her leg and she thinks maybe she was born with her legs joined together, that maybe she in a past life would have been someone who would have been in a freak show, which would be like the narrator who feels like she would have been in a freak show back in the day because she has um, a condition called extradactory, which is incidentally what I have. So she feels this affinity with this girl who she views almost like a princess, but she doesn't conform in the way uh, that other people would expect a princess to on the outside. Like she's, she's dressing up, you know, as this mermaid and putting on a show, but that's exactly what the narrator thinks it is, that it's a show and underneath she's actually just like her, but Mm -hmm. that still makes her just as special. Yeah. It's about that idolizing and also about the history of the freak show. Um, And I wanted to bring those two things together because I do think that's interesting because society really puts beautiful women on a pedestal. But then the freak show is the opposite of that, you know, that that people would pay to see others who looked very different to them, who who didn't conform to what society would expect um, and yet were equally fascinating. I I find that juxtaposition quite interesting. I felt really weird. I went to the Hunterian Museum in London, which is a, a really interesting museum full of the skeletons and basically body parts of lots of different kind of animal, animals. But there's a section on humans as well. There is a guy there who was known as the the Irish giant. He was, I can't remember exactly how tall he was, um, but I think it was thought that he was, he was about eight foot tall. I don't think he was actually that tall. Um, but his his um, skeleton is in the museum alongside someone who was thought to be a fairy because she had a form of dwarfism. It was, it was very strange to go to a museum and, and to see them there. Um, and then when I read about it, I got extremely angry because before he died, he had said he didn't want to be exhibited and mm-hmm. he paid some fishermen to um, to bury him at sea but um, they were paid more by some scientists. So they pretended to bury him at sea and they put him on exhibition instead. And he's still there. And there's a petition still to get him actually buried because he didn't want to be on display for everybody to see. And it's, it's weird that that's, that still hasn't been respected. Maybe people think, well, enough time has passed and whatever, but I find that odd. <laughs> he's still it there. Yeah. It is sad. It's so yeah, sad. It is sad. It is sad. I think you have the next question. I do have the next question. I'm like, how does one transition from that? <laughs> I don't know. Moving um, on. <laughs> we uh, yeah. we want to make sure to get in some questions about your writing because you've, you've written, you, you write just about everything. <laughs> I think agent would like it if I specify, you know, uh, just wrote one thing from now on because that might be easier for him. <laughs> well, one of the things I wanted to ask you was you've written nonfiction and poetry and we mentioned your picture book and now short stories. So we wonder, like, what is it like writing the different types of books and do you have to go into a different headspace and just how do you kind of choose, like, what, you know, you move from one to the other and different things like that. Just tell us all the things. All the things. Well, to be honest, I well, poetry was the thing that I wrote from when I was very small. I remember writing it from when I was like eight or nine years old. So that was the thing that I fell in love with first. Um, and actually, uh, I did uh, an event for Franklin this week and my old uh, primary school teacher came along. Uh, and that was really sweet and really weird to see my primary school teacher 
I'm taller than him now. I mean, what is that? <laughs> That's just weird. Um, but he used to, he used to teach me poetry during break, like how to write haiku and stuff. Um, so yeah, I loved poetry. Um, and then I wrote some terrible novels in my teenagers, like really bad. My best friend still has one of them that he refuses to burn. And I really <laughs> wish that he would. Um, they were essentially ripoffs of, um, Angus songs and full frontal snogging. Did you read that? No, I don't know. No. It, no. Okay. Well, they were a lot of fun and they made me laugh a lot. But uh, yeah, I wrote a book called Life is a Bowl of Cherries when I was 16 <laughs> about a girl called Karen Miles. And it was just, it was just, it was bad. Um, and then I wrote some very, very angsty poetry, very angsty poetry, as do most of us. Um, and then went to uni and studied English literature and became a bookseller. I went through a period where I didn't write that much. I'm not really sure why. There was just a period where I didn't write too much. And then I wrote nonfiction by accident, <laughs> which was fun to write, but not what, you know, I had a vision of what my first book was going to be. And it wasn't Weird Things Customer Same Bookshops, which is not a bad thing because I really enjoyed working on Weird Things and then doing events for it, etc. But it just came as a bit, I don't know, it, just, it was a bit unexpected because it was a blog to begin with. And I was contacted by a publisher who said, you know, this is really funny. Have you thought about turning it into a book? And I said, well, no, actually. But now you mention it. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I fell into that by accident. And then I loved book selling and still love book selling. It's not a not past thing so much that I wanted to write a book about how wonderful bookshops were. Um, so the other side of book selling, um, the thing that's wonderful. So yeah, just strange, weird, wonderful bookshops all around the world and um, bookshops on boats and on buses. So that was why I wrote the bookshop book. But when I write fiction, I tend to start with nonfiction um, not always. Fact is stranger than fiction. <laughs> so I find it a really interesting starting point for fiction. So I suppose that process in a way isn't different from writing nonfiction because I start in the same place. So for the short stories, I was researching um, death rituals around the world, strange fish that live at the bottom of the ocean, the history of fairy tales, war statistics, things to do with uh, nuclear power, and just a, a lot of different things. Oh, plants and plants that grow in people's bodies and real life cases of that happening. Uh, yeah, I do start with nonfiction when I write fiction, though not with poetry. I don't know. Poetry is a different headspace entirely. If we're talking about headspaces, because you're asking if I have to be in a specific headspace. I think for nonfiction and fiction, that's one headspace. And poetry is a different kind of headspace. And I don't know where that headspace is. It's in a weird place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a different headspace entirely. But I, I have always wanted to write fiction for grown-ups. So I'm really glad that I get to do that now and if I, I feel really weird saying that it's a book for grown-ups because when you say that people think that it's porn it's not porn <laughs> I have a children's book out at the same time and then people look at me strangely and I'm like look okay it's just not for children all right <laughs> but it's not that kind of book <laughs> I'm happy to be in those different places uh, and those different headspaces and write many different things. I'm not sure if I'll go back to nonfiction um, anytime soon. I think I'm in the fiction zone for a while, but, you know, never say never. You know, how did you go about researching for your short stories? Because that's one thing I did notice was like, there's a lot of really precise details, which just lends so much to the story. So did you like 
research a bunch of things at first and write the stories after that? Or did you kind of research as you went? I think I, I'm trying to remember. I, I did a bit of both, I think. So some research informed the beginning of stories, but then maybe I would start some stories and then I would think, oh my God, no, that's, I, I want to find out about that specific thing. What I wanted with these stories was to have a blend of fact and fiction so that when you're reading it, you wouldn't really know if something was true or not. I think um, when I've spoken to people who have, who have read it, some people are surprised by some of the true things that are in here. So in a story called um, Plum Pie, which is about a camp for teenagers who are growing plants inside their organs, um, there's reference to some newspaper articles about people around the world who were well, specifically one man in Russia who was found with a fir tree growing in his lung. Like that's that's a real thing. But but lots of people like no, I don't think anyone who'd read it thought that was real. Um, well, one of the things I did want to ask you, Jen, especially was you you read um, portions of uh, the beginning of the world, middle of the night, out loud on your on your channel, and uh, the prose when read out loud is just so lyrical. And is that something that you think that came from you writing, having you know, a history of writing poetry because it's very tight, like every word is there for a reason. Um, I I'm true believer in the fact that as you say every word needs to be there for a reason and if it's not it needs to be gone and also the rhythm of the prose is very important to me all of the stories that I wrote I read out loud as I was revising them because of that fairy tale element and fairy tales were always told you know through word of mouth um I thought that that was particularly important with this book I think I would probably do it with any book I was writing like any fiction book that I was writing well, we want to ask you some fun, like, outro questions. So one is, one, you've already mentioned a lot of books today um, by women that you have loved, but who were some of the female authors that have inspired you in your writing? Ali Smith and Jeanette Winston and Margaret Atwood. I think those, those three are my, they're my queens. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go with them. Any books by them at all. But um, I suppose... I don't know. I was, I was going to try and pick favourites. I can't pick favourites. Like just any, any, any of their books. <laughs> I've actually not read Ali Smith yet, but you're I in know. For a treat. You're in for a treat, I promise. <laughs> well, you kind of mentioned a minute ago that you thought you were going to stay in fiction for a while. So, oh, is I there know any... what question you're going to ask me. Oh, no. <laughs> well, we've, we've interviewed some people and like they don't like to talk about what they're working on next because they don't want to jinx it. So, we totally respect that and appreciate that if you don't want to. But you can ask me because I'm not working on anything yet. So <laughs> <laughs> well, that was easy. I am, <laughs> I am planning to. I'm doing a lot of research and reading a lot of strange nonfictiony type things, and I have some ideas. But um, I haven't actually started writing what will hopefully I'm touch. I'm reaching out as if there's some wood that I can touch. There's none nearby, so I just have to imagine touching some wood. But um, what will hopefully be a novel next, which terrifies me slightly. But I mean, I've said it now, haven't I? So, and this is recording. <laughs> so yeah, that that is hopefully what I'm going to write next. I do have um, the sequel to Franklin's Flying Bookshop coming out next September, and I am. Uh, working on some poetry as well but the next project that I'm going to start will hopefully be a novel for grown-ups so but not that kind of novel <laughs> and I didn't realize 
like I now I want to go back and read your nonfiction. And I've heard of the the strange things people say in bookstores, but I didn't re- make the connection that that was you until we were researching for this podcast. And I was like, oh, I know that book. So to be fair, it's a very different book. So I mean, it's uh, I wouldn't have expected you to have made that connection at all. <laughs> well, I think that's all the questions we had for now, at least. Um, thank you so much, Jen, for talking to us and. For everyone who's listening, you can get Jen's book, The Beginning of the World in the Middle of the Night. By the time this podcast comes out, it should be out, I think. Is that right? That is right. So I will say that it's out in the UK, New Zealand, and Australia. But if you're in Canada and America or elsewhere in the world, you can get it on Book Depository with free international shipping. You won't be able to find it in bookstores in America, but you can get it online. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're huge fans of Book Depository, so... (laughs) So we will have links for that in the show notes. So that way you can easily get your copy. And we will also have links in the show notes to Jen's website and her YouTube channel, which you will absolutely want to check out. So that way you can read more about her work and the things that she's interested in. And again, we highly, highly recommend it. Um, And thank you all so much for listening to the Reading Women podcast. As always, you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and other places at Autumn Privet. And you can find Kendra at KD Winchester. And you can find the Reading Women everywhere at the Reading Women. And thank you all so much for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Bye, guys.